0: Hi, folks. This Voss here from the Chris Voss show.com. The Chris Voss show.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. Oh my God. We have a most excellent guest who's going to blow your mind today. Before we get to that, be sure to refer the show to your friends, neighbors, relatives. Go to the com If you want to watch the video version, it's the newest technology they have out since 2000. Uh, you can go to youtube.com forward slash Chris Voss the bell notification. You can watch all the wonderful videos of all the brilliant authors we've had on the show. You, to see all the books of all the authors we have on the show, you can go to amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Chris You can also follow me on goodreads.com under Chris Voss. And the Chris Voss Show just uh, set up a book club over there. Uh, we're going to be talking about all the wonderful things we do here on the show, the authors, the interviews, uh, the books, probably giving away some books and all that good stuff. So be sure to subscribe over there. And we are now, with all the places we're syndicated around the world, with Amazon Music, so if you like Amazon Music, you can find the Chris Foss Show on there. Uh, we got a chance to check out this book. This thing is amazing by an amazing author and uh, journalist. And uh, well, we'll get into it here in a second. Uh, the book is called "The Spy Masters: How the CIA Directors Shape History and the Future." His name is Chris Whipple. He's an acclaimed writer, journalist, and documentary filmmaker and speaker. Uh, He's a multiple Peabody and Emmy award-winning producer at, you may have heard of this, CBS's 60 Minutes and ABC's Prime Time. He's the chief executive officer of CC Whip Productions. He's a frequent guest on MSNBC and CNN. You may have heard of those too. And he is writing (laughs) and has appeared in the New York Times and the Washington Post. The author, uh, most recently, of The Gatekeeper's, he was the executive producer and writer of Showtime's *The Spy Masters*, CIA in the Crosshairs. Welcome to the show, Chris. How are you? I'm good. Good to be with you. I'm excited for this interview because we get to talk about spy stuff. So, uh, give me, uh, give our audience an idea where they can find mm-hmm. you on the interwebs and order the book. Yeah, well, one place you can go is to uh,
1: ChrisWhipple.net, where you'll find all kinds of links to the book, and you can get it uh, at Amazon or uh, your local bookstore. So um, I hope you'll check it out.
0: Awesome sauce. Now this this book is about the CIA, the spy masters. Uh, I think before we get into the meat of it, can you give a lowdown to anybody out there who doesn't know who the CIA exactly is? Probably a good perspective sort of thing.
1: Yeah, you know, so one of the things I learned when I interviewed every living CIA director uh, back in 2015, which is when this all began is that it's hard to overstate the importance of the position. The CIA director is the person we depend on to prevent another 9-11, a Pearl Harbor, or, or a lethal pandemic. And uh, it's hard to, as I say, these are the guys who are in the room with the president when history-making decisions are made. The stakes could not be higher. They range from starting wars to preventing Armageddon. Uh, John McCone was uh, JFK's CIA director during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and uh, without him, it might have had a very different outcome. He had U-2 photography over at Cuba. He had uh, stolen manuals of uh, Soviet missiles uh, from a defector. Um, these are the guys you want to have in the room when those decisions are made, and um, And often, you know, for better or worse, like the FBI and and other agencies, it's a it's a civilian agency. Um, But the CIA is unique. I mean, the the CIA director commands an army of intelligence analysts, covert operatives, um, lethal drones, uh, paramilitary warriors and and but at the end of the day. If the, if the CIA director doesn't have the ear of the president, if he or she doesn't have a seat at the table with the president of the United States, the whole enterprise is for naught, because you've got to be able to have some, some input into decision making. Now, that's always been a really tough balancing act, going all the way back to Dick Helms and LBJ and Richard Nixon. You can imagine how tough it is for, for somebody trying to deal with Donald Trump.
0: Most definitely. So as we'll get into that here in a bit. What motivated you want to write this book? What was the motivation behind that? So it began actually
1: as a documentary I did for Showtime back in 2015 with the great filmmakers Jules and Gideon Naudet, who did 9-11. Some people may remember that documentary. And Susan Cerinsky, who is now president of CBS News. Um, But I thought... The documentary barely scratched the surface of this unbelievable untold story of 17 men and one woman who have run the world's most powerful intelligence agency going all the way back to the mid 60s. You know, Dick Helms came in in 1966 uh, with Lyndon Johnson. He was the quintessential old school CIA director. Uh, Bob Gates compared him to James Bond. He had some of those qualities. He, you know dry martini in one hand, cigarette in the other. He could hold his own on a dance floor with Fred Astaire, which he actually did. Wow. At at the White House in 1975 at a state dinner for the Shah of Iran when Jerry Ford was president. He was out on the dance floor with his wife, and Fred Astaire was dancing with the Empress. Um, So he's an incredible character, flawed for sure, but ultimately, kind of heroic because he faced down Dick Nixon when Nixon tried to get him to join the Watergate cover-up.
0: He also tried to get the FBI involved in it, didn't he?
1: Yeah, he did. Uh, but the but the real moment of truth, you know, the crunch time came when uh, Nixon ordered his chief of staff, Haldeman, to uh, to get Helms over to the White House, and Helms came, and he and he wound up in a meeting with. Haldeman and Ehrlichman. Uh, Those names may ring a bell with some people. They were Nixon's henchmen. And Haldeman basically told Helms, in no uncertain terms, uh, I want you to, you know, you need to tell the FBI that this Watergate investigation is getting too close to a bunch of your CIA stuff going on down in Mexico, and therefore they need to call it off. Well, Helms was having none of it. Uh, Nixon... And Haldeman thought that they could blackmail Helms because they thought they thought for sure that there must be stuff in Helms's past, maybe involving the Bay of Pigs. They weren't really sure, but they thought surely, you know, we can scare this guy. And and in fact, uh, on the on the Watergate tapes, you can hear Nixon saying, "Well, this will blow that whole Bay of Pig things wide open." The truth was, they didn't really have anything on Helms, and Helms said, no way, I'm not going down this road. Had he done so, he probably would have wound up in prison, and the CIA might have been, uh, might have been abolished. But
0: wow. um, he arguably uh,
1: saved the agency.
0: So you start from Helms. You go all the way from Gina Haspel, uh, who heads the agency today. Uh, was Helms, I, I, I was doing some, in my research, watching some of your videos, was Helms uh, around during the JFK-Cuban crisis in the Bay of Pigs then? Yeah, he
1: was. And he was not um, the CIA director at that point. He was he was climbing the ranks. Uh, He came out of Helms came out of the OSS during World War II. In fact, a bunch of future directors, including Bill Casey uh, and others. uh, Bill Colby came out of the OSS, which was a legendary uh, outfit. Those guys used to parachute behind enemy lines and kill Nazis uh, in Norway and France. Um, But anyway, uh, Helms. Was climbing the ranks, and he was—he was a very clever bureaucratic infighter, and in fact, he knew the Bay of Pigs. He could—he could tell from a mile away that this thing was going to be a total disaster, <laughs> and he managed to keep his fingerprints off of it and stay as far away from it as possible. And uh, in fact, they—they they took up a kind of a betting pool at the office, and people started taking bets about when Helms would show up for a planning meeting for the Bay of Pigs. Well, guess oh, wow. what? He never he never showed.
0: <laughs> that was probably very so, smart on his part. I remember as a kid. He so he survived
1: days. that fiasco.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, shortly after the Bay of Pigs, JFK was enraged, furious, threatened to scatter the CIA to the wind, as he put it. He fired uh, uh, his CIA director, and Helms just kept climbing.
0: There you go. There you go. And Helms must have some pretty good. Or some pretty interesting times with Nixon overall between Watergate and everything else that was going on.
1: Yeah, and before that, he had LBJ to deal with, uh, especially over Vietnam, and that's a that's a great relationship, really fascinating because Helms really admired LBJ for his domestic policy for the great society, and he was totally exasperated by Vietnam uh, because LBJ would demand intelligence showing that the bombing of North Vietnam would bring them to the bargaining table, uh, bring the North Vietnamese to their knees. And Helms kept saying, uh, sorry, Mr. President, actually, uh, it's having the opposite effect. It's strengthening their resolve. Helms was a guy who could tell LBJ stuff like that. And uh, it didn't hurt that right before the Six-Day War, Helms predicted to LBJ it'll last about a week seven days. Wow. From that moment forward, uh, he had a seat at the table with LBJ. And uh, even when he told him stuff that he didn't want to hear, one more quick story, if I could, about LBJ um, and Helms. Helms actually commissioned on his own authority a study of the underlying rationale for the Vietnam War. Some uh, listeners or viewers may be old enough to remember it was called the Domino Theory. That if South Vietnam fell, all of Southeast Asia would fall. Well Helms did a study, came back with a memo that said basically that's a bunch of BS. Uh that's not gonna necessarily gonna happen. He handed it to LBJ in a sealed envelope. His widow, Cynthia Helms, told me all about it that they deep six this thing because they thought it was so explosive politically that it would uh it would, it would destroy the war effort. Now, fast forward many years later, and the phone rings in the Helms' house. Cynthia Helms' wife picks up the phone. It's Robert McNamara, the former defense secretary, who famously did a mea culpa years later. Remember, in the early 90s, he said it was all a mistake. He Mm -hmm. just found this memo and read it for the first time. And he started yelling at poor Cynthia Helms and saying, why wasn't I shown this? this could have made a difference. Why didn't I see this? And poor Cynthia's is taking an earful from McNamara. Anyway, it's, um, full of stories. I, I, the thing I, I like about, I liked about writing the book is that it's, of course, it's about all the skullduggery and failed coup d'etat and, and all kinds of, uh, fiascos and and some successes but it's ultimately it's about these people as human beings and i think you get to you get to understand what makes these these cia directors tick
0: did lbj ever see the uh that commission
1: yeah he saw he saw that memo uh it's interesting because helms claimed the only time he ever talked about it he he claimed that um LBJ never spoke to him about it. He just got rid of it. Cynthia <laughs> told me, his wife, his widow, told me, oh no, they had plenty of arguments. Boy, did they fight over that. Wow. So I found that to be kind of fascinating
0: and that's the cool thing about your book you really get into this because the CIA uh, um, director needs to have the ear of the president and the president needs to listen to the CIA director Um, fast forward to Trump you you expose some different things in your book about the coronavirus pandemic we all kind of we all kind of know about how Trump uh, you know he's a well he's a bullying narcissist in in my opinion and so you know the world revolves around him. He knows everything and you know, what does he need anybody else for? And we've all seen the attacks that he's done on the, on the things. So, um, do you want to talk about some of the coronavirus exposure uh, yeah, and things in sure. you've, you've
1: Yeah. So I, I have a, a whole chapter on, on Donald Trump and his two CIA directors. The first was of course, Mike Pompeo and, uh, the current director is the first woman to run the CIA, uh, uh Gina Haspel. Um, who's a fascinating character, and we'll get to her in a second. So in fairness to Trump, he's not the first president who was convinced that the CIA was a so-called deep state full of enemies, liberals who were out to tear him down. That's what Nixon thought of the CIA. (laughs) And he thought Dick Helms was this martini-sipping elitist from Georgetown who was out to get him. They were both delusional. Nixon was delusional, Trump delusional only more so, because at the end of the day, the CIA is really just full of a bunch of people who keep their head down and try to do their jobs and try to ignore whoever is in the Oval Office at any given time, no matter if he's calling, comparing them to Nazi Germany or whatever he's doing. They, they're pretty good at <clears throat> keeping that out of their heads and just doing their job. Having said that, um, you know, this is a whole new ballgame with Trump. Uh, To mix my metaphors, it's it's been a broken marriage from day one when Trump went out to uh, Langley to CIA headquarters in Virginia and stood in front of the so-called memorial wall, which is really hallowed ground at CIA. Uh, there's a star on <clears throat> on that marble wall, signifying every CIA officer who uh, gave his or her life uh, in the line of duty, and of course Helms, uh, of course Trump stood there and and uh, bragged about the size of his inauguration and barely acknowledged uh, the CIA officers up, who were signified on the wall behind him. Uh, there was. Not That was not a good start to the relationship. It's not. I remember reading it's, uh, about that. It's um, arguably uh, got even worse. But, um, you know, at first, Trump brought such contempt for the intelligence community to the job that he, he wasn't even going to sit for CIA briefings in the beginning. He didn't want them. Wow. Uh, didn't trust them. Didn't believe anything. They thought he wouldn't believe anything they told him. He finally relented when Pompeo, his buddy Mike Pompeo, agreed to come and be there personally for the briefings. Pompeo became a kind of Trump whisperer, uh, but not exactly a teller of hard truths. Um, In fact, he would go out in public and repeat falsehoods because Trump liked them. Uh, Things such as Iran's not in compliance with the nuclear agreement, when in fact they were, and that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Uh, Pompeo was a master at telling Trump what he wanted to hear. Um, there were higher hopes for Gina Haspel, and we could talk all day, but I, and I won't get into the weeds here, but Haspel uh, is fascinating because she's a mystery woman. She flies below the radar. Uh, she came out of Kentucky, a Johnny Cash fan who uh, cut her teeth as a covert operative in the back alleys of Africa she then went on to um to befriend a very unlikely mentor a guy named uh, Jose Rodriguez at the CIA who of all people he was the guy who was in charge of the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques and the mm-hmm. black sites and all that stuff uh and he wound up sending Gina Haspel to the the infamous black site in Thailand mm-hmm. where uh Abu Zubaydah and other al-Qaeda terrorists were being held and subjected to these techniques. Anyway, I have some great stories about her that have never been reported before about her time there in Thailand. But uh, Rodriguez became a kind of unlikely feminist mentor, right? I mean, get that, get this. Here's a guy who's running the black sites and he's this sort of uh, secret feminist mentor and he's telling Gina... Nah, you don't want to be CIA. You don't want to be station chief in Geneva. That's not good enough for you, girl. You got to go for London. (laughs) And she went for London, and the rest is history. She became uh, CIA director, deputy to Pompeo, and and now CIA director. Um, So just briefly about her, there were high hopes for her because she had a good reputation for being a hard-ass truth-teller, but she's really had a mixed bag a mixed record with with Trump. On the one hand, um, she deserves a lot of credit for defending the agency's report about uh, M- the Saudi Crown Prince MBS and the killing of Jamal Khashoggi.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, the CIA stood up to Trump on that and said, we have high confidence that MBS ordered that hit. Uh, all to her credit. Since then, it's been much more disappointing. Um, for example, uh, you know, soft peddling Russian involvement in the 2016 election, and especially in the 2020 election now. And um, of course, the, the pandemic has happened on her watch. And Trump threw his briefer under the bus, saying that he was told it was no big deal. Um, I find that very hard to believe, and <laughs> we all do. <laughs> and Gina Haspel's uh, silence on that speaks volumes.
0: Yeah, uh, you know. Speaking of that, there used to be—I think—once a year, all the intelligence agency heads would meet and give a te- televised testimony to Congress, right? And then, there, yeah, I the
1: key phrase there right. is "used to be."
0: Yeah, it used to be, that's, and it's a real problem. And, and, and our, uh, in doing my research, I was watching one video, you and you were talking about how she kind of stays below the radar a lot more now. I think, what was it, last year that they finally made the decision, or maybe it was the year before, I'm starting to, you know, the blood loss in my brain from Trump is, is running out. Um, they stopped doing those because they were infuriating Trump.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So the last time they did the annual uh, worldwide threat assessment, uh, which is a, is not legally required, but it's a tradition that goes back decades. I asked Bob yates about it, and I said When was the last time they cancelled that and he said he couldn't he he couldn't ever remember that happening until yeah. recently so here's an interesting tidbit the two that buried in the two thousand nineteen w w t a as it's called uh, which which hardly anybody noticed at the time was a an eerie prediction of that a coronavirus, something very much like a coronavirus could come out of China wow. and result in a worldwide pandemic. Nobody paid much attention to it at the time. Fast forward to 2020, in January of 2020, sorry, February of 2020, uh, there was supposed to be another worldwide threat assessment, which is by definition, a public, Assessment that's given to Congress, mm-hmm. uh, it never happened, and the reason it never happened, by all accounts, is because Gina Haspel, the CIA director, the DNI at the time, and others were afraid of saying stuff Trump didn't want to hear. Yeah, why is that? Why is that a bad thing? It's it's a dangerous thing because at the end of the day, the CIA director is the honest broker of intelligence, not only to the president, but to Congress and to the American people. It's harder to politicize intelligence in private if you have to testify about it in public. Yeah. And that's why that's that's a really troubling thing. And uh, that fear of antagonizing Trump uh, continues.
0: And it, it's quite scary, too, because... You, you know you 've heard uh, well number one uh that sort of presentation was supposed to tell the American people what they 're paying for and 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 you know educate the American people like what, what what are we doing here and uh and so by Trump getting that closed down, he was able to silo information to you know whatever he says, and so you know we don't have we don 't have that exposure as the American people but also um, I wonder if, because I heard you talk about several different aspects of this, if Gina Haskell, and, and they say that a lot of the intelligence community is, is actually more wary and, and lying low because they're, they're, they don't want to give information to Trump. Because, we, I mean, we've seen how open he was with Bob Woodward. Can you imagine when he says to Putin and, and Xi Jinping and everybody else? I mean, God knows what he carries on about.
1: Yeah, but, but I, think, I think the problem is really, um, you know, the fish rots. From the head, it, it mm-hmm. the problem is really at the top of the agency because I think the people working underneath, Juno Haspel at CIA, the the analysts and the covert operatives and the others, uh, as I say, they they want they just want to do their job and they just want to present intelligence that is not, um, you know, kicked around and manipulated and uh, and uh, shaped to the president's liking. They just want to present. Mm-hmm. Honest evaluations and assessments and um, so i i think I think what they need is a director who will stand up for that and who will have their backs uh, all too often. I think this CIA director has not had their backs, and uh, you know there was there was a case where uh, where a former prosecutor went on fox and compared the cia whistleblower you remember him way back when compared Mm. the cia whistleblower to john wilkes booth (laughs) well if you're and not a word from gina haspel in that whistleblower's defense um, you got to have the backs of your troops the really good ones like the leon panettas uh, and and some others we can talk about they always had your back and that's a very important thing as cia director
0: you talk about the details of uh, john brennan's discovery of the plot of the russian massive interference in the 2016 election james clapper's uh, conclusion give us some details on that
1: yeah so the uh, the, the introduction of my book uh, really opened it with this uh, pretty amazing scene it's you know it's it's past midnight and and brennan is uh alone in his conference room right off his office on the seventh floor of Langley that overlooks the the woods. And he's uh, burning the midnight oil as usual. He he was often there at all hours, uh, trying to figure out, trying to put together the intelligence that was coming in, signals intelligence. It was human intelligence. It was what they call open source intelligence. It all added up to one thing. This was early August of 2016. And he suddenly realized that holy, you know what, Um, the Russians are coming, and they're coming with an unprecedented assault on our presidential election, and they've penetrated uh, the electoral machinery in 39 states. It ultimately turned out to be all 50 states. Uh, They didn't actually, in the end, manipulate votes, but but they could have. Yeah. and at that point, he wasn't even aware of the social media component of it—that that that they became aware of later. But they also had human intelligence that said that Putin was personally behind behind this, and that he had ordered it. And he knew this. Brennan knew this was really explosive, and he had to figure out how to how to break this to. Uh, how to, how, to, how to inform the right people, Barack Obama, and, and how many others? You know, he felt it was too sensitive to put in the presidential daily brief, which went to too many people. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's the opening of the book, and um, and then I follow that, um, and and in later chapters, toward the end of the book, I come back to it, um, and tell the whole story of the uh, the Russian assault on the U.S. election. Um, so here's, but here's a quick sort of spoiler alert about john brennan which which some people may find interesting because he's so he's so controversial and he's obviously become uh famous for being pretty tough on donald trump and in some people's uh minds he's a, he's a real partisan by all accounts whether you like him or hate him john brennan as cia director was the ultimate honest broker Objective uh, teller of truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everybody you talk to, uh, whoever was around him, will tell you that when he walked into the Situation Room, he gave it to Obama uh, absolutely right between the eyes, whether Obama wanted to hear it or not. Wow. Uh, He he was a real stickler for that. So, whatever you may think of his post CIA partisanship, if that's what you think it is. Uh, that's John Brennan.
0: I, I like watching John Brennan, uh, and and sometimes when he goes real secretive or dark, or you know, there's like, well, I can't talk about that. Um, and the, the funny thing about John Brennan is, like, I would never want to owe him money.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he looks like he looks like an, an old Testament prophet.
0: He, he does. He, looks he like does.
1: He's pissed off all the time, but he's uh, there are people, um, including a lot of the women who worked uh, around him. Who just think he's a teddy bear? They just they just love him.
0: He probably um, is in real life. He's just yeah. you know when he's on camera. And- talking about serious issues you know i think it's hard for so many different people who have to comment on trump uh like i i hear this all the time you know people would be like you know the news seems really prejudiced against him i'm like well that's because he's doing stuff like 20 times a day that's either highly illegal and unethical, moral or against the against the interests of the united states um but one of the things you talk about and and we should probably get bush in here too as well is is how how, whenever presidents in nine eleven, whenever presidents haven't listened to the CIA, whenever they haven't put uh, put us uh, put the CIA's uh, uh, you know the warnings to heart, um, we as the American people can end up paying for it. Do you want to talk about George Bush and nine eleven?
1: Yeah, it's it's a great story, and and I have chapter and verse uh, in my chapter on nine eleven about that whole walk up to. that terrible day. Um, And in the summer of uh, 2001, and and specifically on on July 10 of 2001, uh, the head of the the Al-Qaeda unit at CIA realized that it was coming. There was going to be a huge attack from Al-Qaeda. It was imminent. It was going to cost probably thousands of American lives. He went to uh, his superior, Kofor Black, who went to George Tenet, the CIA director. The three of them uh, went straight to the White House. Um, Tenet picked up the phone and called, and he got Condi Rice, and he said, Condi, we're coming over now. Get ready. Uh, Bush was out of town, George W., but they went over, and they sat down with Condi Rice, and they laid it it on her, and uh, it was pretty scary stuff. And there was no doubt in their minds that it was coming. They couldn't say exactly where. They they obviously couldn't say that it was commercial planes flying into the World Trade Center. They didn't know that, but they knew it was coming. Uh, and I had a, a great interview with Kofor Black, who was head of the Counterterrorism Center. And I. he, he said, we came out of that meeting uh, almost doing high fives, saying to each other, Hey, we finally got through to her, you know, we, we, we told him what was, what was happening. And I said, yeah, well, what happened? And he said, yeah, exactly. What happened?
0: Nothing happened. Was she the problem or the administration?
1: I think the problem was more than just Condi Rice, but it was the, it was the mindset of most of the people in that White House. And as Kofor put it to me, he said, you know, they were living in a time warp. They were, these were, people who thought the terrorists were Euro lefties who stayed up all night drinking champagne and blew up some stuff during the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, <clears throat> that was the seventies, seventies yeah. and eighties style. Uh, they just couldn't believe that there were a bunch of guys with beards and caves in Afghanistan that were about to, uh, strike the U S. Um, so part of it was that mindset. Um, there's no no doubt about it, but of course the CIA got blamed and uh, pe- people told uh, one one elected representative uh told Kofer black one day "Cofer, how does it feel to be uh responsible for the biggest intelligence failure since Pearl Harbor? Well, at the end of the day it was um it was the Bush White House that was really yeah. asleep at i the mean
0: start. he was infamous for not uh, wanting not to Bush read White his House. his reports right Bush
1: well. Um, actually, that's not true. George w. Mm-hmm. w. Bush was a, actually a really voracious consumer of intelligence. Uh, that's the irony here is oh. that, uh, in part, in part, in part because of his old man, uh, Bush 41, George H.W. Yeah, Bush was, of course, the only pr- president who was also CIA director. Mm-hmm. Uh, so W. took his, his intelligence briefings seriously. He had them every morning, uh, but he wasn't putting any stock in this this bunch of people called al-Qaeda uh, for whatever reason. And um, reportedly, later that summer in August, he was down at the ranch. And some people may recall there was a famous President's Daily Brief later declassified. The headline was, Bin Laden determined to strike in the U.S. Wow. And uh, Bush reportedly told his briefer, okay well now you 've you 've covered your ass um, anyway <laughs> they didn 't take it as seriously as <laughs> obviously you sure.
0: know you look at you look at the arc of history and what would have happened if we could have prevented that attack. how much different we would be as america i don 't know if we would have had worse since, but uh, so
1: here's here 's the other really interesting thing, and I hope it 's not too much in the weeds here, but one of the things that I was told by a number of people in a position to know, really, who really know how the NSC works in the White House, all they had to do, all Condi Rice had to do was call a so-called principles meeting, which means you get the big cheeses around a table, head of CIA, head of FBI. Uh, these days, it would also be Homeland Security and others. What happens when you do that? And is that when you shake the trees, stuff falls out. And people interrogate each other, and they say, oh, yeah, we, you know, those two guys, uh, well, it turned out there were two hijackers in the U.S. for months before the 9-11 attacks. If they would called a principal's meeting, there's a good chance they would have figured that out.
0: Wow. Did Brandon at the time in August have uh, have the CIA's information, or the FBI's information that, that with Papadopoulos and all the stuff that they were doing at the FBI with, uh, with the Trump?
1: You know, that's a good question. I don't know to what extent <coughs> excuse me, to what extent Brennan um knew about Papadopoulos and, and, and those guys at that time. Um I think he was focused mostly on the on the on the social the Russian assault on the election and the penetration of the election machines and, and all the rest. Um but obviously that that came into play later,
0: because I know one of the <clears throat> things with the nine eleven. I'm hopping back and forth here, uh, but I know one of the things that they found after nine eleven was the agencies weren't talking to each other, and that was one of the the um, fallacies of that, that helped contribute to nine eleven getting by the intelligence agencies.
1: Yeah, that was a huge problem. There was this really kind of a Chinese wall between FBI and CIA, and there just wasn't any. There wasn't enough. Uh, meaningful communication and that's how a lot of stuff fell between the cracks. Um, So they attempted to fix that. Congress did post 9-11. That's why in 2005 they created the so-called director of national intelligence, this new job. Uh, It's now held by John Ratcliffe. Uh, When Brennan was CIA director, it was a a guy named Jim Clapper. Um, And the DNI is nominally the cia director superior but what he's really there for is to coordinate all the other there's 17 u.s intelligence agencies um, of which of which the cia is one and the dni is supposed to coordinate all those other intelligence agencies nsa uh, dia and all the others while the cia director takes care of cia um, Now Brennan and Clapper will tell you that it's a, it's absolutely essential that uh, they had, but they had a good working relationship. It was a really rocky beginning, Um, and I tell that story too uh, about how a DNI made the mistake of taking on Leon Panetta.
0: Wow, the untold story of the CIA's biggest manhunt ever is another uh, thing you take and talk about in your book. This has never been reported.
1: It's an incredible story the um for decades the CIA and Mossad the Israeli intelligence agency had one guy at the very top of their list that they wanted to get they wanted to um, neutralize him in in some in some way and his name was Imad Magniya, and he was the operations chief of Hezbollah and in some ways people described him to me as absolutely brilliant, diabolical, um, more dangerous than Bin Laden, uh, a guy who had blood on his hands um, for decades. He was, he, among other things, he invented the so-called shaped charge, which was um, a, a kind of super IED um, that would take out uh, Israeli tanks in Lebanon, for example, Um he was um, responsible, f- going way back to when he was a very young man. He was, he was thought to be the mastermind of the worst day in CIA history, which was the bombing of the American embassy in Beirut in 1983. That really began wow. the whole era of truck bombs and that form of terrorism. Uh, this was a really bad guy and on top of it he was elusive. They they literally had one grainy photograph of this guy. He had disguises. He'd never used the same phone twice. He was you they couldn't find him half the time. So I tell the story that has not been told before about how they at the end of the Clinton uh, administration, they tracked him down in Beirut and they've discovered that he was visiting his uh his uh, mistress in a in an apartment in South Beirut <laughs> he would go there he would have sex with her and then he would beat her uh this this did not make her very happy and she wound up cooperating with the CIA oh wow and they set a trap for Magnia and they had they were ready to bundle him into into a vehicle and take him down to the dock and and Take him out to a ship in the Mediterranean that was standing by, and the whole thing went south at the last minute and they and it failed wow now fast fast forward ten years and um, I tell the story in the book of how in in detail that 's never been reported before of of the joint CIA Mossad operation that finally tracked him down in Damascus, and they found him and they tracked him and they uh, wound up doing a joint operation where the CIA supplied the remotely triggered bomb. They built it and brought it into Syria. But the deal was that Mossad and the Israelis had to pull the trigger. And this was partly because of, yeah. uh, of, of executive orders, rules against assassination,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which, of course, Trump conveniently ignored in January when he decided to kill uh, General Soleimani, which is another story anyway um it's a fascinating story they tracked him uh by drone uh they watched video of him uh it was an excruciating wait they had to wait until he was they put the bomb in the spare tire of his vehicle but they had to wait for a moment where it would kill him and only him and they finally got him uh and it's a hair-raising story
0: that's amazing that's amazing so last, last question uh who do you feel was the best CIA director? I don't know what measure to put that under. I mean, you you may have a better in your analysis and study. Like who 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 maybe was the best, or or who do you who do you who did you like the best as maybe CIA director in your studies?
1: So it's a tough it's a tough question. There were some good ones, and there were some really bad ones. As you, you might know. lose
0: some friends here, if you.
1: <laughs> and uh, and you know there were you can't, there's no hard and fast rule. There's no sort of graduate school for CIA directors. There's no rule that says insiders are better than outsiders or vice versa. (laughs) There have been real success stories on on both sides. Um, But here's a kind of a spoiler alert. Um, My last book, as you know, is was called the gatekeepers about the white house chiefs of staff and the qualities, some of the attributes that make, a great white house chief of staff also served cia directors really well and i don't think it's a coincidence that leon panetta was the gold standard not only as white house chief of staff but as cia director and of Mm -hmm. course it didn't hurt that he had osama bin laden on his watch Uh, but the thing about panetta was that he knew his way around he was a he was a he was comfortable in the corridors of power on Capitol Hill. He knew how to he knew how to work Capitol Hill. He knew how to work the White House. Uh, he had a a good relationship with the president. But beyond that, um, he was 70 years old. He'd been around the block. He was confident. He was comfortable in his own skin. He had nothing to prove. And he could go over to the White House and he could walk into the Oval Office, close the door, and tell Barack Obama what he didn't want to hear. Yeah, And that's that for both the white house chief of staff and the CIA director, that's maybe the most important thing. Now, it didn't matter particularly that Panetta didn't know that much about intelligence. Uh, you can, you can learn it and you can delegate that. And if you, if you go in another mistake that, that CIA, a lot of CIA directors make is they, they arrive with their own, uh, Coterie of sycophants, you know, they bring all their own, they bring their friends in and try to take the place over. Well, that never goes down at CIA. Hmm. Uh, I mean, they'll they'll eat you. I mean, Kofor Black said it was like you know Scottish tribes greeting the English king. <laughs> <laughs> you really don't want to do that, right? Yeah. So uh, outsiders could get eaten alive, but if you're but but panetta was a master at um not only doing all the things i just mentioned but he he was gregarious and he was popular and he was he had their backs i mean mm-hmm. he made it clear to everybody that he was on their side uh others that have been good so there another an insider who was very successful bob gates um who really knew how the place worked and uh and also uh supported his troops, um, and, um, you could, you know, we we could go on all day, but I'd have to cite Panetta as one of the best.
0: Yeah. it Was he the one you enjoyed writing about the most, I guess?
1: Well, tough choice because Helms was a lot of fun to write about. Yeah. And, of course, back in those days, you had Helms and a cast of characters that Le Carre couldn't have dreamt up, you know, James Jesus <laughs> Angleton – Kim Philby, you know this mm-hmm. the Soviet mole, and you and um, it's a it's a great there were great stories from beginning to end. So so yeah, I liked writing about Panetta, but Helms is tough to beat.
0: There you go, there you go. All right, well, anything more you want to uh, plug about the book as we go out?
1: Yeah, let me just tell you one one other thing, um, which is that. So what I hope the book succeeds in doing is capturing the humanity of these directors. Some of the moments uh, my favorite moments are when Dick Helms comes home at night and tells his wife, Cynthia, that he has lash marks on his back, not literally, but figuratively because Bobby Kennedy has been beating him up all day about killing or getting rid of Fidel Castro. Um, Leon Panetta standing in the uh, cemetery at Arlington for a funeral of a CIA officer, when he learns that there's a terrorist in the crosshairs of a drone over Pakistan and he has to decide whether to pull the trigger. Wow. And he, moreover, he's told that they've got the guy and he's a bad guy, but there are innocent civilians in the shot, as he put it. And Panetta as a devout Catholic fingering his rosary beads and saying Hail Marys and making the decision in that case to pull the trigger. And wow. innocents were killed. And he said to me, "We, Chris, you know, we got him. Uh, and all you can do in a situation like that is ultimately hope that God agrees with you.
0: Wow. That's a tough call to take and make. What Was it the CIA who had... Uh, Osama Bin Laden during Clinton in his crosshairs? They had the car and everything. They they were arguing amongst the lawyers from my understanding of pulling the trigger.
1: There were there were times when arguably they could have got Bin Laden where they had him uh, on video from a drone. There was one famous uh, uh, incident when on George Tenet's watch where they saw this tall guy in robes and they could see him from the drone, but the drone at that in those days, wasn't weaponized. They didn't have the missiles. Uh, and uh, f- for a while during the Clinton years, uh, Janet Reno, the attorney general, uh, was the, the decree from her was, uh, you got to capture him. You can't kill him. Um, at the end of the day, at the end of the Clinton minis- administration, uh, there was no doubt that Bill Clinton wanted Osama bin Laden dead. Uh, but it took a while to get there.
0: There you go. Well, or of the book. This is going to be a lot of fun. It's a fun read because it's about spies, the spy masters, how the CIA directors shape history and the future by Chris Whipple. Uh, give us your.coms uh, where .dot nets, where people want to look you up on the interwebs, Chris.
1: Yeah, you can go to, uh, go to my website, Chris Whipple.net and you'll find everything you want to know about uh, the spy masters. And, uh, as well as um, my previous book, The Gatekeepers, about the White House Chiefs.
0: That's awesome. So go to, uh, you can order up the books. You go to Amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Chris Voss. You can see all the wonderful books in order of the spy masters, how the CIA directors shape history. I've always been intrigued by this. One of my first books I read as a kid was a thousand days uh, and the Bay. It was about, you know, talking about the Bay of pigs and everything that went on with JFK and uh, just extraordinary read the fun, the, the sort of cold war element, the spies and all that sort of good stuff. Uh, You can also go to YouTube.com. which Chris Voss, Uh, hit the bell notification, see this video version. Go to uh, goodreads.com and see our book club over there under Chris Voss. And then also we're on Amazon Music. Thanks to my audience for tuning in. Be sure to give us a like, subscribe to us uh, on iTunes, and we'll see you guys next time.